Hello and welcome to this link latest podcast on the remuneration provisions of the Investment Firms Directive, which we'll refer to as the IFD. I'm Sarah Kelly and I'm Juliet Graham and we're both managing associates in the Linklaters Employment and Incentives Practice. Juliet, we've been preparing a lot of client know-how and advice in recent weeks on the IFD. So why don't we start by you summing up why this is so relevant now? Thanks, Sarah. There are three points I'd like to make. Firstly, the IFD is a new prudential regime for investment firms, which will introduce a host of prescriptive remuneration rules. For some firms, it will be the first time they're caught by such detailed rules. Secondly, the remuneration rules will particularly bite for so-called material risk takers at such firms. Material risk takers are defined by prescribed criteria, and it will be a big challenge for firms to determine which staff are in scope and then communicate the impact this has on their pay. Thirdly, it's unclear when the rules will first apply. One EBA consultation indicated the 2021 performance year, others summer 2021 or the first performance period starting after summer 2021. The UK regulator is considering the latter approach and will consult on it later in the year. Thanks, Juliet. Let's explore your first point in a bit more detail. The scope of firms caught by the IFD is quite technical. Investment firms will fall into one of four classes. Class 1 firms will be the few very largest investment firms which deal on own account or underwrite or place instruments on a firm commitment basis. They will become regulated, including in respect of remuneration, as if they were bank entities. And in fact, those firms will need to become reauthorised as credit institutions. Other large investment firms with significant but not quite systemically important own account dealing or underwriting and placing activity will fall within the so-called class one minus. Firms in this class will not need to be reauthorised as credit institutions, but will still be subject to the same prudential requirements, including as to remuneration as credit institutions. On the opposite end of the spectrum, Class 3 firms are small and non-interconnected investment firms which are subject to a lighter touch regime, including being subject to only the lighter touch MIFID 2 remuneration rules. Then there's the remaining class, Class 2, and this is the default categorisation. Class 2 includes firms which hold client money or administer or safeguard client assets, as well as smaller firms that trade on own account. That's provided those firms don't fall within class one or class one minus. In addition, other investment firms which exceed any of the following thresholds also fall into class two. One, having assets under management or subject to ongoing non-discretionary advisory arrangements of at least 1.2 billion euros. Or two, undertaking cash trades exceeding 100 million euros per day or derivatives trades exceeding 1 billion euros per day. Three, having on or off balance sheet assets of at least 100 million euros. Or four, having total annual gross revenue from investment services of at least 30 million euros or more. So, as you can tell, this could catch a large number of investment firms who will be required to comply with the IFD remuneration rules in full by virtue of falling within class two. Thanks, Sarah. And it's worth noting that the IFD remuneration rules apply on a consolidated IFD group basis. 
This raises issues, especially for entities within the consolidation group subject to sector-specific regimes, such as the AIFMD and USITS 5. That's right. So it's quite a complex exercise to work out which firms are in scope of these rules. But it's clear that lots of firms that are currently BIPRU or even CAD-exempt firms doing advisory type activities will become Class 2 firms. So they will have to apply the prescriptive remuneration rules in full for the first time. Yes, and this really impacts on material risk taker identification. My second point, the IFD defines material risk takers by reference to quantitative as well as qualitative criteria. So pay grades can catch staff within the consolidation group who don't even work for the IFD firm. Exactly. And such staff are then subject to onerous remuneration rules. This includes 40% or 60% for high earners of variable pay having to be deferred over a three to five year period. At least 50% of variable pay being in retained non-cash instruments and malice and clawback applying to all variable pay. Yes. And whilst it's possible for some firms to disapply the rules on deferral and payment in non-cash, it won't be possible to disapply the rules on malice and clawback. So firms will have the communication issue of explaining to staff that their pay is subject to malice and clawback, and then the contractual issue of structuring pay to comply with these provisions, which is difficult from an employment law perspective, particularly depending on the EU jurisdiction. And then on top of that, there's two additional layers of complexity. One, the timing gap between the IFD and CRD5. The UK regulator has said that IFD firms will not be subject to CRD5 for the interim period before the IFD kicks in. Now, the EBA seem to echo this position at the EU level, but they haven't been fully clear. So EU IFD firms could find themselves having to comply with CRD5, which includes the bank bonus cap, before transitioning to the IFD. And then secondly, because of Brexit, the UK implementation of the IFD may vary from that at EU level. So there's potential for firms to be subject to both sets of rules due to consolidation, and global groups will then have to grapple with the nuances between the different regimes while still maintaining a consistent approach on pay. Yes. So there's lots to think about. I hope this gives a flavour of some of the key considerations. Thank you very much for listening and please do not hesitate to get in touch if you'd like to discuss any of the points in further detail. Thank you again.